historically, during times, especially a year after a war, there is a massive spike in North American Aliyah. 49, 68, 74, huge spikes. There is an incredible expression of solidarity with a capital S, patriotism, homeward bound, visceral connection or visceral awakening to one Zionism. And that really prompts a person to come. I'm fascinated to see, because this is the first time since 1948 that we will have both components. We will have a historical momentous moment militarily-wise or existential-wise for the country, at the same time coupled with an unprecedented wave of expressions of anti-Semitism. So whereas in North America you've always had the pull, for the first time you'll have a push and pull. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. What does Israel mean to you? For years, this was a theoretical question for many people who live in the diaspora. But after the events of Simchat Torah, the question has gained additional resonance and, in some ways, can no longer be put off. It demands an answer. With Israel under military attack and the Jewish people experiencing verbal attacks, unlike any scene since World War II, Jews outside of Israel have been forced to reckon with their attitudes towards the communities in which they live, the institutions with which they identify, the political parties with which they affiliate, the neighbors who now may see them differently, and perhaps above all, they now may need to articulate what kind of relationship they have and want to have with the Jewish state. I was honored to host Rabbi Yoshua Fass, the co-founder and executive director of Nefesh Benefesh, in order to ask him some of these questions and to learn about what has changed and what hasn't since October 7th. We talked about the reasons that a person should and should not make Aliyah, questions about the independent integrity of diaspora Jewry, the relationship that exists and should exist between Jews in and outside of Israel, if there has been greater interest in Aliyah over the past four months, and much more. We'll begin that conversation in just a moment. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. Please subscribe to my Substack, Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. Last week, I posted one new article entitled, Your Faith is Very Great. It investigated the prayer we recite first thing in the morning, Modeani, and discussed the idea that God has faith in us more than we have faith in Him. Please help us continue to reach more and more people by subscribing and sharing with people who you think will find it engaging. It's free and you can cancel at any time. So go to the link in the description of this podcast to get your subscription today. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Rabbi Yoshua Fass is co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh and has served as the organization's executive director since 2002. After receiving his rabbinic ordination and degrees in biology and education from Yeshiva University, Rabbi Fass assumed the position of associate rabbi of the Boca Raton Synagogue of Florida and served as a member of the Beit Din of the Orthodox Rabbinical Council. Along with Mr. Tony Gelbart, Rabbi Fass founded Nefesh Benefesh, which has revolutionized Western Aliyah and has facilitated the Aliyah of over 80,000 North Americans to Israel. Over the years, the foundation has become a senior partner with multiple leading Israeli governmental ministries and is widely recognized as the premier immigration institution in Israel. Rabbi Fass has been awarded numerous citations over the past two decades, among them receiving the Jerusalem Prize, the Begin Prize, and an honorary doctorate from Yeshiva University. And in addition, he was included in the Jerusalem Post's 50 Most Influential Jews. Rabbi Fast lives in Beit Shemesh with his wife, Batsheva, and is the proud father of seven children, including four native-born Israelis, and has three grandchildren. Rabbi Yoshua Fast, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. My pleasure. Great to be on. I'd like to start off by asking you some basic questions about Nefesh Benefesh, which is the organization you co-founded. Could you tell me and outline the reason that the organization was founded and the goal of the organization, and whether that goal still applies now, years after you founded Nefesh Benefesh. 
Great question. We founded the organization in 2002. Um, it was based on the realization that Israel knows or has mastered Aliyah of refuge. Those who are running away from distress, duress, persecution, economic um, you know, hardship, um, Israel being a collective homeland, being able to give as a default a haven for those running away from something, they were able to master that. They never wrapped their head around this concept of Aliyah of choice, of those who are leaving incredible lives, but want to, out of a whole host of reasons, theological, ideological, opportunistic reasons, moving to Israel to hit the ground running and giving. And uh, in 2002, we wanted to address the wants, needs, fears, concerns, desires of North American Olim. We also realized that perhaps a method that would help people prepare themselves and not only make Aliyah, but thrive, not just survive, would be if there was a holistic model, a holistic model of the same body that dresses the pre, during, and post that builds the trust factor that people will come back and return to the same address. It also creates a sense of accountability for us because we're the ones who are going to be dealing with the OLA after the fact. And that, that created the organization 2002. From 2002 to 2005, we're still finding our way. 2005, the government of Israel made a historic decision, and they decided that because they're, by their own admission, they didn't know how to do Aliyah of choice, that they would, for the first time in Israel's history, deputize um, North American Aliyah, deputize Nefesh Nefesh to handle um, a region of immigration um, for the country. From 2005 to 2008, the Jewish agency and Nefesh tried to find their way <laughs> with this new understanding or this new directive from the government of Israel. And in 2008, officially, um, the Jewish agency handed us the keys as being the frontal office or the marketing component or the prepared pre, during, post body to deal with Aliyah. They would do the back office eligibility paperwork, but we would collect everything and we would be the ones, we would be the front face for the entire concept. Uh, it was very much, to answer the second question that you threw in, my mission or the focus of the organization was to facilitate Aliyah and to help remove the obstacles for those who wanted to move. Um, there are a bunch of hosts of different obstacles that prevent a person from fulfilling their dream. If we would remove those obstacles, we would be able to increase Aliyah and not only increase Aliyah, but increase the retention rate of those who move to Israel. But things evolved over time. Uh, our micro-facilitation was then addressed by the government of Israel saying, hey, you know you have, I hate to use this phrase, human capital. You can leverage that human capital to address national issues, national issues of lone soldiers, national issues of physician shortage, national issues of education, educator shortage, or moving people to the periphery. Once we started looking at, at a macro impactful level, not just a micro facilitation of a family from Cherry Hill, but what can that collective group of people do to help move and build this country one person at a time. Um, so that facilitation went from micro to macro, and then it evolved to not only just facilitating, but advocating, educating about Aliyah and Zionism, celebrating accomplishments and impact of, of Olim. So our mission statement is radically different from our initial mission statement. Our mission statement now is facilitate, advocate, celebrate, and educate about Zionism and Aliyah. Um, we have many departments here um, and many offices and only one group of people that deal with Aliyah and Kita, and the others are handling different other micro projects. I think I answered that with a long-winded answer. You did answer the question. I appreciate that. But I want to ask you about what you mean when you say removing obstacles for those who are already considering Aliyah. Is that still the way that Nefesh Benefesh perceives itself or does it actually encourage actively moving to Israel? We have left the encouragement to the success stories. I very much believe in chaver mevi chaver. The success stories will breed other success stories. And giving the megaphone and featuring the successes of Olim to be able to communicate it to their friends, family, back at home. Uh, for us is what can we do to alleviate some of the hardships to make sure that a person has a clearer runway and have the ability to thrive and contribute and to succeed in this country. Those obstacles change. They change based on time. They change based on just circumstances. 
I'll give you an example. In the beginning of, of 2002 to 2005, we, we would buddy family. We would select a buddy family for each OLED and, and, and create packages of, of pen palling between families. Now it's a joke. What are you talking about? I don't need a stranger sending a note to me or telling me about, you know, what, what's happening in Ariel versus where I'm going to, to Renana. I, I have my friends. I have my roommates. I have my, my, my sister-in-law. I, I, they have this organic community. Once you have this organic community and the concentration of communities that have risen over these last two decades, um, that itself has changed that need. A lot of the issues was the financial, the bureaucratic, the um, professional, and the social. Social's changed over the last two decades. We we are celebrating our 85,000th OLED and, and 35,000 babies. So there's an ecosystem of 100,000 nefesh nefesh people walking around with those stupid hats on, walking around the country. Uh, so that's changed. That's radically different. So the social nuances, the social um, programming is very, very different. Um, the, the bureaucratic is different. The, the, the country has evolved over the last two decades. They, they've gotten the concept of customer service. Not sure they're good at it yet, but they got it. The idea exists. The idea exists, and that's a huge leap. That customer, and then that will hopefully evolve to a customer experience. But the fact that customer service has to be taken into equation that's a huge breakthrough. So you're not dealing with knocking on a door and the deaf ears and they don't understand what you're even talking about. You're not talking Martian. You're talking about, okay, but we're limited or we don't have the manpower. We don't have the technology. It's a very different starting point. You know, when my wife's family moved here in 1986, they came on a plane. They arrived at Ben Gurion at Terminal 1, of course, not the current Terminal 3. They went into an office. They had some Petel, raspberry juice signed a bunch of papers, and then lived for the next six months in a Merkaz Klita in Mivaseret, in an absorption center, which, by the way, in retrospect, was terrific. They really have fond memories of it. At the time, it wasn't necessarily so beloved. It was extraordinarily tight and small. You had to go to a payphone if you wanted to reach anybody, and there was absolutely no space. They have fond memories looking at it in retrospect, but at the time, it was really difficult. Things have obviously changed drastically since those original days. You just reminded me of, of a great uh, before and after. Um, before, I know a family that made Aliyah in the early 80s. He was a physician, and when he finally got his license after nine months of waiting, his license was in dentistry. <laughs> they messed up his paperwork, and he was so dejected and so frustrated that he just didn't apply again. He wasn't going to start practice dentistry because he didn't know what to do. <laughs> right. But now, fast forward, in two weeks from now, March 10th, I'm flying in um, the Ministry of Health, a team of 10 of their licensing professionals who are going to meet 200 physicians who have not made Aliyah yet, who said that they're making Aliyah in the next few months. We're going to go through the entire process of licensing there. They're going to be meeting hospitals and clinics. They're going to be getting jobs getting a license so that the moment they hit the ground, they're not getting a wrong license. They're getting a license without waiting for nine months. That is a revolution of government industries understanding that for their needs, for the country's needs, they have to adapt with the times. And I, and I think that has, is a very anecdotal way of expressing how things have changed over the last two decades. You also expressed before, Yoshua, that people sometimes come for opportunistic reasons. Yes. Now, I remember my wife telling me again that, I guess this was in 85 or 86, the year before they made Aliyah, they had an Aliyah meeting in their house in New Jersey. And the shaliach, the messenger who came and talked to them about Aliyah from whichever organization, obviously long before Nefesh Benefesh exists, told everyone in the room, my wife was a kid standing on the stairs listening in. The person said, look around. And notice what you have here financially. Look at your own financial situation, your bank account. That is the most you will ever have. It's only going to go down once you move to Israel. I think that nowadays that's very not true. And I'd like to know a little bit more about those opportunistic reasons that people come to Israel. So let's, let's talk about quality of life versus standard of living. Because I think that is a, a profound transition of every Ole. But when I was referring to the opportunity or opportunity expressed, um, I find it very, very fascinating looking at the young professional applications, the essays of those aged between 18 to 30 years old. 
and it's growing. Um, they're predominantly not Orthodox. They're not moving because of religious reasons. There are around 1,800 of those a year that come, between 18 to 32 years old. The majority of them are, are not religious and not Orthodox. Some of them are conservative, reform, unaffiliated. And they express this notion of just the opportunities in Israel. Like, I can be number 40,000th in line for Google, or I can be number 4,000 in line for Intel or Google in Israel. And they look at it very much as, obviously, there's ideology involved, but, but they look at it as an opportunity. And a lot of it is also personhood and identity. A lot of them came on birthright, and for the first time in their lives, they felt a sense of belonging, a sense of self-definition. So now they want to, to re-tap into that. Some of them are coming for the experiential element of coming to Israel or for the army. Uh, but, but that is what I was alluding to about the, the, the opportunities that the startup nation is offering that 30 years ago was an anathema to so many North Americans. Again, that was the whole concept. You, it was a yirida to make aliyah. You had a descend to ascend. Um, but for many, it's it's it's... And I, and I, I talked to tons and tons, it's, it's thousands of people over the years. And it's that recognition of that pivot between standard of living and quality of life. A lot of individuals might have and might sacrifice the concept of standard of living just by real estate itself. You might be used to a certain home and a certain backyard in America it's very hard to duplicate that here. It's very hard. But your quality of life is profoundly different. The way your family is glued and cued into this concept of nation building, that the, the, the holiday, the, the Jewish experience is enveloping. The, 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 you, you feel that with every breath, with every step, that you are tethered to a nation versus building your congregation. There's congregational you know, focus in America versus national focus here that we, you know, after a few years, we take it for granted, but it's that, that pivot is so profound. Our conversations with our children and the decisions that our children are making is light years different than what our conversations would have been, you and me, with our kids back at home, back in America. <laughs> right. So, Other home. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to get screwed over that. Um, <laughs> but, but, but that, and, and that you ask people, and that's the vignettes that people always come back. We might have lowered our degree of this, but, but it's so dwarfed by what we've gained in the quality of what we're living. I'd like to ask a little bit more about those non-religious or secular Jews who make Aliyah for ideological reasons I'm always so inspired by that, even as I don't entirely understand it. In my own religious sensibility, I almost put it up to an unconscious identification with the spirit of the Shekhinah and Kal Yisrael and Knesset Yisrael, which I'm guessing they probably wouldn't say. Perhaps I'm being condescending by even suggesting that there's some deeper Rav Cook-style religious emotion that's driving them. But I'd like to know from your perspective, Rabbi Fass, why is it that Jews who are not identifiably religious and perhaps realize that they're going to probably lower their standard of living, and that quality of life of being in a Jewish state might not have the same resonance as it might for a religious Jew. From their perspective, why do they make Aliyah? I don't want to follow in the same condescending um, path, um, but it, it's, it's a different generation. The generation of, of that generation is very self, not focused, but self-addressing. Where can I have um, the greatest expression of myself? Where can I have um, the greatest opportunity professionally? Where did I feel a sense of belonging? Where, do I f where did I once feel a sense of, of genuine Jewish expression? So it's all revisiting back to that. Now, you have to understand that leap is a very different different leap than a 32-year-old family, you know, 32-year-old adult family from Teaneck, New Jersey, because it embedded in that decision is sacrifice, values. There's a whole prioritization that's happening with that decision. So when the going gets tough, you have enough to outweigh or to balance or to dwarf somehow to dominate your kind of equation. But if you're coming with a very much uh, an experiential, self-experiential fulfillment, and the going gets tough, 
then this is not this is not doing it for me. Um, and therefore, we we have we tr we're doubling down in our outreach to those individuals who are not migrating and moving naturally to Yushalayim, to Jerusalem, but they're going to Tel Aviv and creating a center there, creating programming there, creating almost manufacturing almost a community. Because if you're Orthodox and you're single Orthodox and you're going to Yushalayim, you're going to be in shul and hopefully someone will invite you and you'll have your kiddush and you'll have your Shabbos and you have a built-in infrastructure that will collect, you'll integrate into if you if you're going to Tel Aviv and you don't have that community, you get lonely very quickly. And if you get lonely very quickly, you get sad very quickly. And if you're sad, then your self-fulfillment or your self-enjoyment is going to be reduced. And therefore, then people go back. So we're, we created a center on Rothschild Street. Now we're moving, hopefully, to the Israeli Towers, creating a huge campus there for, for Tel Aviv um, young professionals. And, and it's fascinating because the meals that we have in Yushalayim are very, very different than the meals that we have in Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv, it's pluralistic. It's this and it's, it's, a, it's a gorgeous scene of Jews from all walks of life. Um, but And it's really with a focus of community building. So, again, it, it's remarkable. I'm at, equally inspired. I wouldn't gravitate to the Rav Kook Mitzotz, which is a nice spark that permeates all of us. But I think it's, it's remarkable to see what in a person's trajectory or life experience until they're 20 years old created that seed that doesn't come from a chumash or doesn't come from a sitter or doesn't come from what was that seed? What was that spark that pushes a person to defy everything around them and to do something so abnormal um, and come? And then you have another category, and we can't ignore that, of the people who want to come, or the young professionals want to come in and fight, fight in, in the Jewish army, in the IDF. A lot of them are children of Israeli expats who heard all these stories about their father and mothers fighting the IDF, and they have this pent-up Zionism, they want to express it, or want to have that experience of fighting in the IDF, so they have, you know, what to talk about. Um, but uh, there is a draw, there's a pull of that, of that, and that is evident, evident, evident in, in the way that they express their reasons for moving to Israel. Again, a pitfall with that, and I'm sorry for doing this long-winded answer, a pitfall is that what happens at the end of the army, um, once they've put a check in that box of IDF expression or IDF experience, are they now going back to the States, or is that enough to move them forward in their experience in Israel. Okay, very interesting. I want to go back to something that you said a few moments ago when you talked about the quality of the conversations that you and I will have with our children here versus if we lived in a place like the United States or any other place in Chutzlaretz. Now, a difficult conversation, which I've actually had several times over the past month on this podcast, is the question of religious Zionism versus modern orthodoxy. And one of the issues that has come up is the fact that it seems that people in Israel, in the Dati Leumi, national religious world, often have greater problems, it seems again, in the realm of children not remaining religious or as religious as their parents, as opposed to what happens in Chutzlaretz, in the modern or centrist Orthodox world, where retention, remaining a member of the Orthodox synagogue, might be less of a problem. Now, admittedly, I realize that the numbers might be skewed, this might be entirely anecdotal, but Certainly, a lot of people do believe that that's the case. And I wanted to know how you would address that problem if someone were to say, I'd like to move to Israel. I'm scared my kids will go off the derech. It's a question that I, that I hear. That I hear. We can't ignore it. And, and I think, first of all, I think the fear or the apprehension is, I don't think it's in parallel or represents the actual numbers. Um, I know from the numbers of our families and the teenagers that 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 have been raised here or they came when they were teenagers and how they're succeeding. I'm not putting my head, head in the sand and, and ignoring that there is a phenomenon happening, but I don't think it's in the hysterics of the numbers that that people are presenting. So much so that two years ago, we created this prasma or to give prizes to teenage olim who are making incredible impact in their communities. Just to show, just to stop this this ridiculous wave or the tsunami of all kids are falling off the derech, and and it's just simply not true. 
Um, there are, and, and there are phenomenons and there are certain pockets within different communities that, that really hurt. It hurts your soul, not because between, I um, say something sacrilegious, not because you're leaving Torah. It, it hurts your soul because that they are, that they're hurting inside and they don't, and they don't feel that they're, they can find their self where they can express themselves within the Dalet Amot of, of Torah and Halacha. And that, and that hurts. Just you see the struggle within their eyes. It's interesting. I've had this, I've, I've tried to dissect this with, with, with educators and psychologists and trying to figure out, is, it, is there a real difference? And if there is a difference from us to the States, what's the reasoning behind it? What's resonated with me, uh, or the only thing that really resonated within this conversation that I felt to be somewhat factual, is that in the States, it's very tribal. It's us versus. You're creating your island of religious expression, and outside of that boundary, there's a cliff. You fall off. So the, the delta or the contrast between being part of that tribe or being part on that island versus the out does two things, good and bad. Good, it holds and tethers and maintains individuals that might have been on the fence because it is too dramatic of a drop or too dramatic of a, detour, a departure of stepping out of that circle uh, because it's void of everything. The negative is that when a kid does fall out or when a person leaves that island, they, they're in this abyss that seems to be very void. In Israel, it's just the opposite. The island's huge. The island's the country. And expression of your Judaism and religiosity and Sionut and Torah is so interwoven. Sometimes it's beautiful. Sometimes it's confusing for kids. You see individuals put on the yarmulke and they say the bracha and cry over a, over a beautiful event. And your kid's like, wow, he's so religious. I know I didn't see you cry, Abba, over, over this event. So they're getting... This, this chulant of emotions and expressions of Judaism, religiosity. So you don't have that cliff to fall from, but you have that span of connectivity. And the fact that there is such a loosely defined connective tissue is less of a fear for a person to, to walk out of that island, walk away from that island, because I'm still, hey, I'm still here. I'm still expressing myself. I'm still having the holidays. I'm still, it's not that cliff. So that I think, I don't know if it is the seminal change, but I think it's definitely an ingredient or a catalyst that, that either exacerbates the situation or maybe is the very um, focus of, of, this, of this change. Okay, that's an answer that actually has a lot of depth to it. I appreciate that. I want to ask you one more question about Nevesh Benefesh, which is also sort of a general question about challenges that people face once they have made Aliyah. Yoshua, in your experience, what is the most common problem that Olim from Western countries experience when they get to Israel? And in tandem with that, I'll ask, in what area would you say that Nevesh Benefesh needs to do better? Uh, I think over time it's changed. And again, going back to our original point of our conversation, if you would have asked me this 10 years ago, I would have said a different answer. 20 years ago, I would give you a different answer. Now, I think it's real estate. You mean the cost of real estate? The cost of real estate, the affordability uh, for, for young families to be able to purchase a home. The same, it's pandemic. It's, it's happening throughout the country for, for young families, for young Israeli couples, not just Olim. But the fact that you came from a home ownership and you're transitioning here, and you can't even afford, or there's such a transition of what you can afford, is very daunting for an immigrant. And it's something that we haven't touched. It's something that we're trying to do. I'm spending a lot of time canvassing the country with major builders to find out, could there be a microcosm, a micro-experimental model that we can use for Olim to hopefully maybe apply on a national level, the same way that the government comes to us and knocks on our door, hey, why don't you apply what, what you're doing for Olim to national causes, maybe use that muscle and use that opportunity and use also the greed <laughs> of, of the building companies to see what we can possibly do. I, I, and I have a lot, I really, myself and my partner, Tony Gilbert, we've delved into this of within the details of what can be a model that is sustainable 
affordable, um, that is accelerated, that gives the ability to rent with the option to buy, that caps it at a certain point so that it doesn't have a runaway feel to it with prices, that has a percentage that has young Israelis also moving in. So you're, so you're not just creating an Anglo bubble. It's, it's challenging, but there are opportunities out there. And there's tremendous, there are a lot of beautiful projects that are being um, created, that are being built, that are being planned. So that is something that we haven't done. And I feel guilty that I didn't venture into this obstacle years ago. I think we would have, we would have been having different conversation now for, it would have been an opportunity for people now if we started five years ago. But now we're starting and hopefully in five years from now, we'll have, we'll have different solutions. I know that real estate is an issue where I have very mixed feelings myself as a father, meaning I'm fortunate in that we bought our house 20 years ago in Ramat Beit Shemesh at a fraction of the cost that it would be right now. And yet at the same time, while that's tremendously good for me, it's terrible for my kids because it means the same house that I was able to afford, they could be in a better economic situation than I was at that age. And there's no way they could afford a house like this. I hear you, brother. It's the same story that we're all talking about. Okay. I want to talk about post-October 7th and Aliyah trends. In terms of actual numbers on the ground, I'll get to interest in Aliyah soon. It might be too early to know actual numbers because it has been only four months, even though it feels like far longer than that. Has the number of people making Aliyah gone up? Has it gone down? Has it remained relatively stable? Last year and the year beforehand, between October 7th and February 13th, we had close to 1,000 only. And 1,000, same number of people made Aliyah during that time. The division of that, those who flew versus those who changed status here in Israel, is a bit different. It's flipped. We had a majority last year and two years ago, a majority of them who flew and less of changing status. Here, it's just the opposite. It's a converse proportion here. I think because of the flights and because of the turmoil of what was happening, um, but the numbers are steady, but the applications just not only the interests and the application download and the application submitted are all way over 100%, all doubled across the board in every single demographic, in every single age. Even the age has dropped a little bit, the average age. It's remarkable. I'll give you a, just I'll give you an example. Last year or the year beforehand, we had around 2,500 people lined up before the year to make Aliyah. And during the year itself, around 50% of the people who make Aliyah during any time year apply. So you get your 4,000 buying 2,500 beforehand, and then you have another 1,500 that apply. And by the end of the year, you, you yield that 4,000. Already before January 1st, we've had over 5,000 people lined up for next year. So I don't know what the conversion rate will be. Will it fall in line with a 70% conversion rate of usual applicant to Aliyah within the year? Will this continued trend? We don't see it slowing down at all since October. We're waiting for it to drop. It dropped in France. France was the only other country that had an astronomical spike, and it started to peter out in France. And we've been constantly looking at the other countries, and North America hasn't stopped. It's continuing to build this momentum. And it's not just curiosity seekers. You're submitting applications. You're submitting paperwork. This is after a conversation with family members. This is you're already in the process. You've already been assigned an Aliyah advisor. So if before we're going into the year, we have 5,000 people lined up and you're going to get another 2,000, 3,000, you're going to have a, a nice pool of individuals who are really seriously interested in making Aliyah. What that does, how does that yield? We'll have a conversation a few months from now and, and, and we'll dissect it together. Then to what do you attribute that difference, that spiked interest? It could be that you don't know, but from what you've heard, what you've seen, is this a fear of anti-Semitism? Is it patriotism vis-a-vis -vis Israel? Is it something else? What are the main reasons that you think people are expressing greater desire for Aliyah, regardless of whether or not it actually pans out into numbers on the ground? So we ask the Ola. So, so I would have data just for this conversation. No, we, we, <laughs> we ask the Ola because we... we we really are a data-centric organization. We like to see trends. We like to, to, to see whether or not we're targeting our marketing and our programming well, and also just to create the staffing and program that's necessary. The interesting thing is last year, or a typical year, you would have around only 2.5% individuals who express that anti-Semitism is a reason or discomfort in America or Canada being the reason for them to move. So I expected, based on 
everything that we're seeing. And this is unprecedented uh, wave of anti-Semitism. I expected it to be much higher, um, but it's at 5%. So it's doubled. Now, I don't know. It's still a small between, number, though. Between you and me, Scott, I don't think it's, I don't know if it's, it could be empirical data. I'm being honest with myself. I don't know. Because if the whole world or if everyone in America is considered a candidate for Ali of choice, how many people are going to say, well, I'm moving because I'm running away from something? I don't know if people will feel that it's an inferior reason for moving to Israel and they're embarrassed to write that. Um, so I don't know how much we can really glean from it, but it's definitely part of the conversation. It's definitely woven within the feelings. It's definitely one of the ingredients. We're not ignoring that and they're not ignoring it. And we're walking through this minefield to make sure that we are not lacking that sensitivity of recognizing what's happening in America. But again, you have to know, historically, during times, especially a year after a war, there is a massive spike in North American Elia. 49, 68, 74, huge spikes. There is an incredible expression of solidarity with a capital S, patriotism, homeward bound, um, visceral connection or visceral awakening to one Zionism. And that really prompts a person to come. I'm fascinated to see, because this is the first time since 1948 that we will have both components. We will have a historical momentous moment militarily wise or existential wise for the country at the same time coupled with a unprecedented wave of expressions of anti-semitism so whereas in north america you've always had the pull for the first time you'll have a push and pull it'll be very very interesting to see how that translates perhaps i'm asking something which you can't answer but i'm going to ask it anyway do you have any prediction for what it's worth about what's going to happen regarding the anti-Semitism that you say is now pushing people potentially into making Aliyah. Is this anti-Semitism a blip, which will then go down when, God willing, the war is over and behind us? Or is this a new sea change in the way that the world sees Jews in Israel? Obviously, this is not something which you can necessarily answer. This is not a nefesh benefesh or Aliyah question, but I am curious about what you think about that. I have no comment. I don't have the hubris to, to, to even... Uh, I don't live there. I haven't li lived in America for 22 years. I frequently travel. I'm in touch with many, many communal leaders from across denominations. Uh, I hear from them, but I am definitely not. I know when to answer a psaac and when not to answer a psaac. And this is a case for me not to answer. I, around the Shabbos table, I'll pontificate and tell you what I think. But uh, I, I don't think in a formal setting uh, of an interview, I'm not holding. This is... Uh, I think I can be, it's it's not based on 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 facts or even experience. Totally fair. And I respect that. It's a good thing when a leader is able to say, I'm not equipped to answer this question, so I won't answer it. I think most of us just say, well, I'll give it a shot. So I'm actually- Well, ignor that ignorance helps. It's the whole day I spend my time saying, I don't know. So it's, uh, I'm already patterned to that response. Let me ask you about reasons that a person should not make Aliyah. Reasons that you would tell somebody, should they ask you candidly, I am going to make Aliyah for the following reason. Are there any reasons you would say, that is not a good reason to make Aliyah, and if that's the reason that you're coming here, you should not come? Yes. Um, anyone who is coming for escapism or feels that Mishana Moko, Mishana Mazel, that if they feel that it's the panacea for their marital bliss or um, familial bliss or professional career, anyone who's running a away just from not from something away from themselves or from their current situation escapism never is an ingredient for success in anything forget about aliyah in life itself a lack of preparedness people who do things in a rash way these are all applicable to any major decision in life the same way that you would discuss this with anyone who's about to propose to a girl or about to buy a house it's or move or take a job. You're not escaping something. You shouldn't make decisions based on escaping. You shouldn't make decisions without lack of research and preparedness. And you should make a decision or a major life decision if there is not a buy-in or familial harmony 
on being on the same page. It doesn't mean that everyone has to be saying or singing the same note in the symphony, but it means that you are sensitive to the different voices that people are expressing. I had a couple, retired couple in my office who were here for a pilot trip sitting in my office last week. And in the middle of the conversation, I just turned to the wife and I said, you don't want to come. You don't want to move to Israel. And she looked at me, she's like, I don't. So I said, guys, go out to lunch. <laughs> this is not a conversation with me. This is a conversation with the two of you. You're not on the same page. And I don't want to continue this conversation. It's malpractice. It's pastoral malpractice. It's human malpractice. You shouldn't have a conversation that's going to create more fissure, more friction, more tension between the two of you. You're not on the same page. That goes between husband and wife. That goes with your teenagers. And I often say, when, I, when I'm in the States and, and they're talking about a pilot trip, and then I ask them, one of the questions, I'm just giving away one of my secrets, I say, I say to do you have a teenager? Because based on their age, and they said, we do. So I said, how do they feel about the decision? Well, they're okay about it. Sometimes I, if they're in that room, I'll say, could I, could I sit with them for a few minutes? But I often say, when are you going on a pilot trip? So, so if they say, my wife and I are going on a pilot trip in a month, I say, you know what? How many tickets can you have? You buy a ticket for your teenager. And if they say, no, we can only buy two tickets, I often say, you know what? It might be smarter to bring your teenager instead of a spouse and build that vision together for as a representative of the children or the, the next generation with you. You need to create that harmony. You need to get on the same page. You need to feel that everyone's involved in the research and the preparedness the same way that if you and I were doing a family mega vacation, we want to get people involved. We want to hear their thoughts because we can plan things exclusively and not at all be sensitive to their wants and needs. But if we get them in board, especially this is a life-changing decision that's going to affect them and generations to come. So get them on board. So if someone even hints to a, a notion of escapism or a lack of preparedness, even unrealistic preparedness, someone comes and says, I want to make Ali in five weeks. What? What? What are you talking about? You didn't do anything. You're not prepared. Calm down. You wouldn't do this. You wouldn't move to Nevada in five weeks. Let's let's calm down. And and just making sure that all pieces of you, pieces of you means cerebral, emotional, spousal, children, familial, are all on board in some way. Then in that case, when you speak about preparedness, I'd like to ask about some of the most common concerns that people have who may be considering Aliyah, but are afraid of certain things. I think that many people might say, in theory, they want to make Aliyah, but we know that deep down, the red zone, the will isn't really there. And the reasons are only excuses that come after the fundamental will is simply lacking. I'm not speaking about people like that. I'm talking about people who genuinely want to make Aliyah, but intellectually are concerned about certain things. What are some of the common, realistic concerns that people have? such as safety, children serving in the army, economic success or lack thereof. What are the concerns that you often hear that are real concerns? The two E's, economic success and education. And again, those have evolved over time. In the beginning, the first few years, the wave of response that I heard from people is that we really want to move to Israel, but not having my son serve in the IDF. Even to the point of someone said to my wife once, I don't know, how dare you, something like that kind of language. How dare you make a decision to subject your son to the idea? But really, a frontal attack. That's dissipated. That's dissipated. The education, the concerns that the education opportunities are not going to live up to what they have. And Americans, we've all gotten spoiled. If, if you visit a school in America, it's, it's, it's breathtaking. It's breathtaking. I had a minister who never went to America asked me to take him to, his, to, to, to America. A minister his, in the Knesset. Min, sorry, minister in the Knesset asked if I can take him on his first trip to America to show him around. Now, what do you show a person? You know, how do you show them around? So I was trying to figure out, okay, there's religious, there's social, there's secular. How do I give him a piece? Three days. How do I show him um, what America is? So, so I brought him to a few schools and schools and just different arenas. Uh, just to give him a sense of what, and I brought him into Frisch. And he turns to me, I was like, why would anyone move to Israel? <laughs> this is the minister in the Israeli government. He was like, we don't have anything like this. 
then I took him to YU and he's just like sees the base measures and he's talking to these people and they're pre-med and they're 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 steiging away in the base measures. He just couldn't wrap his head around it. And then you showed him the tuition bill and then he understood. Exactly. Then he was like, ah, exactly. He was like, bring him home. Why are there not enough? So education and and the more specificity in the educational want, the more daunting it is for the person. If your checklist is going to be this long in anything in life, it's going to be very hard for you to find the shidduch. It's going to be very hard for you to find that school. It's going to be very hard. You have to feel a sense of on broad strokes when it comes to what you want for your child. Obviously, it's not going so poorly in this country by the, the amount of companies that we're having on NASDAQ and the startup nation. I mean, somehow we've survived this horrible education in Israel, and yet we're producing such brilliance and, and innovation. So it's just, it's different. The class sizes are different. The school looks like it's falling apart. The curriculum's different. Your homework's different. Your extracurricular activities non-exist. That is very hard. And the freedom, on the other hand, for the child, it's very hard for a person. It's very daunting. That's very scary. Until you experience it and until you finesse and morph with that, along with it, and mature with it, it's very hard to prepare a person. There is an element of of jumping into the waters that every Ola has to make, that every person before any life decision, you just have to trust your gut, trust your preparation, trust your heart, and step forward. I see with my own children, for example, they were all born here, but they do have cousins who go to Jewish schools in the United States. And when I see the programs and the quality of the education that my nieces and nephews have in their various schools, I'm simply awed. That's amazing. And yet my children, despite the fact that they see the same things, and it's not as though they love school, that's not where they're coming from, they still have no desire to be in those schools. They're very happy with their lives in Israel. So, so the, the question that I have, I'm speaking to a, a couple of individuals of who have that educational background and other individuals who have the financial backing to if we created that type of school with the stadiums, with the, with the fields, with the lab, with the robotic labs, with the, all the trimmings, will that, will that bring people? And, and, and it goes back to your core question. Is it just something that we're enveloping the, the excuse not to come or the justification to come and we're justifying it? I, I don't know. Or is this really a real obstacle that if you able to offer an alternative, then you'll have hundreds of people coming? We have to try and spend tens of millions of dollars trying. That, that is a core issue. And the second is just this notion of how do we afford, how do we afford move? Again, that is a Rubik's Cube, a Rubik's Cube that every family has to start playing with because it's very different. Okay, my salary dramatically change, but education's non-existent, education costs non-existent. And it's, it's a very, very different calculation. So, and a very different budgeting. So that, that itself is, is, takes a lot of time for people to prepare themselves for that, for that leap. Yeah, I would say that there might be something just, I realize this isn't our conversation today, but in the educational sphere, there might be something in the middle because to me, there are two elements. Again, speaking as someone who's been here for a long time, so it could be that I don't really know. But educationally, on the one hand, there's the, as you call it, the robotics lab in the stadium and the other aspects which are parenthetical, sort of on the side that are important, but not the key element. There's the other element of education here where I simply think, again, I could be wrong, and it's my own anecdotal experience, that some of the teachers aren't trained in education per se, necessarily as well as they would have been in modern pedagogical techniques that I think some of the teachers in the States, which is what I know, have received. There could be an element of, we don't have tens of millions of dollars to buy the robotics lab. We do have the money to invest in teacher training. It's a good point. It's a good point because the subject matter, there's complete mastery of the subject matter. Uh, the, the our kids are exposed to individuals in, in so many different spheres that are just head and shoulders over some of the teachers in other locations. I'm not just leaving that as vague as possible. But pedagogically, the lessons of pedagogic skills were never mastered or never taught or addressed. And I think that, Shiluv, maybe that, that investment or infusion could really help. Even just training and, and sensitivity of the of what an immigrant is or their cultural nuances and just the bullying and, and just the way the cultural changes can give you whiplash, especially if you're a kid going from one class to the next. Certainly. 
I want to ask you a couple questions about the relationship of diaspora Jewry to Israel. Again, this might be an area where you're not comfortable really commenting because by definition, it's anecdotal, it's your own experience. But as somebody who has a lot of contact with people who have recently made Aliyah, people in Chutz who are considering Aliyah, you probably have an impression of the way that diaspora Jewry looks at Israel now versus the way they did four and a half months ago before the events of Simchat Torah on October 7th. Do you think that has changed significantly apart from, as you said, a heightened interest in Aliyah? But in general, is the relationship a sense of closeness? Because I personally wonder if emotionally we're now closer to people in Chutzlaretz, or maybe I should say people in Chutzlaretz feel closer to Israel, but experientially the gap is widening because what we're going through living in Israel is so different from the experience of watching it from so many miles away. What's your feeling about that? I think you hit it on a, uh, on the head with within the Orthodox world. We'll, we'll we'll talk about the Orthodox world, and then we'll talk about conservative reform. Because I'm in conversations with with all the denominations. Next week, I'm I'm meeting with a delegation of another denomination, non-Orthodox, for the American to Israeli or the diaspora Jew to the Israeli Jew. I think it's it's created such a strong tethering of I think the the fact that. I know so many hundreds that are are just glued to the news, glued to the TV, waiting, waiting anxiously every day to see, and not only to see the the news, but interestingly to see our reaction. And it's by our own admission that we feel so close, but we know that we're not there. I got three phone calls two days ago. I saw the news of the two hostages being rescued. Please tell me what the country's feeling and what you're feeling and that and that three three phone calls i'm not talking about the other whatsapps three phone calls i can hear in their voice and it it was very telling and i think it encapsulates that emotion and by their own admission whether or not it's subconscious or conscious of saying "We're, we're we're so thirsty we're so connected this is our nation um, and and in and it's interesting because I was I was speaking to an educator the other day and I said you know Israel's incredibly Zionist America is very Zionistic in certain communities but they they lack the amimiyut the nationhood concept I think the war itself for the last four months there's been a feeling the same way that we f- felt that fusion here in Israel I think we're feeling it with the diaspora Jews of this glued to what's happening but I think it also um, exacerbates or heightens that feeling that I'm not in, I'm not there. I'm not there. And and people mean well in certain expressions, but it falls so flat and so off because they're not here. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to get into trouble <laughs> with some colleagues, but some things are being done and it's meant beautifully, but it's just like, what are you talking about? We don't need that. We need this. And that's not what we're feeling. And, and I don't want to get into those details, and I'm even of it, but we need presence with a CE. We don't need presence with a T. And I've said this, and, and it's a beautiful thing because people want to express and people want to give and people that's, but, you know, I, I, I constantly think of the image of a parent who is ill or infirmed in, in a hospital. And you have some siblings, some children who are caring for that person. And you have... Uh, one of the child who lives on the West Coast and not able. And they're, and they're the ones who are calling every five minutes because they feel so detached and connected. And sometimes they're sending things and sometimes they're doing things that are just, you know, we don't need the box of chocolate. They're on an intubator. We, 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 not, I'm just to, to an extreme dramatic expression. It, it, you feel distant. So I think that is, that is heightened. And I think people feel it. And I think that itself is also causing this notion of where do I belong and that tension. And I've been saying this for 20 years, just feel the tension. And, and that's been my, my, my common theme in every single speech that I've said it over the States. It's fine. You don't want to make Aliyah? Fine. Don't come. Just feel the tension. Feel the tension of where you belong. And it's okay if you have other reasons not to come. Right, and all my Rav Cook friends will be upset with me for even saying that. But it's okay, but just feel the tension. Feel what is an ideal and what's not, what's superior, what's inferior. Just feel that. 
And every rabbi, every communal leader should express that as well. We're building this, but we shouldn't. But we're doing this, but I'm about to sign a contract for 20 years, but my heart is breaking as I do it because libibim Israel. Feel the tension, express the tension, share that tension. You know, I'll just say that for a long time, I've been saying something very, very similar to that. My feeling is that if somebody is going to make Aliyah and be miserable, that person should not make Aliyah. If a person has reasons not to make Aliyah, of course there are reasons not to make Aliyah. The one thing which I have a hard time respecting, and perhaps I'm being very judgmental here, is the person when, if he's asked honestly, why don't you make Aliyah, his answer is, what? Why would I even consider making Aliyah? It never even occurred to him. Now, obviously, each person can decide to do what he wants to do or what she wants to do. But I believe there's something fundamentally lacking in your Jewish consciousness if the question doesn't even arise. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. Well, I would think so, speaking to the head of Nefesh Benefesh. No, it, it just, it, it should be something that gnaws at each individual that requires them to have that self-awareness or that self-conversation to make a conscious decision of, I'm not. Maybe I should, maybe whatever it is. It's a concept. It's a concept. The fate, the faith, the destiny of the Jewish people belong there. I can't now because of a host of reasons. And But communicate that to your family, communicate it to your congregants. And I think this war has created that feeling of such a conscious 24-7 Lude connectivity to what's happening with our nation, with our country, has created that focus, calibrated individuals compass to at least focus constantly on Israel. That is stirring the soul in a way, stirring the soul to say either subconsciously, that's why am I so attentive? Why am I so obsessed? Why am I so focused? Because my heart's there. If my heart's there, if my soul is there, and why am I here? And maybe there's a subconscious dialogue that's happening. Um, and I think that tension, implicit tension, is what we're experiencing now. And then you have other communities that are really having fundamental existential conversations with themselves of what does Israel, what does Israel mean to us? And they're gluing and they're connecting their their connection to Israel or their connection to Zionism as Israel as a political national body. Um, and, and for them who are living in worlds of a very critical perspective of what Israel's doing, for them it's, it's forcing them to choose sides in a way. And it's very painful to see that struggle. And I'm sure you're seeing uh, lots of articles that, that are surfacing over the last just 48 hours. I can't, I, I don't have enough time to read all these articles of, of, of just catching up of what's happening overseas of just how do we align ourselves as non-Orthodox denominational rabbis and clergy with, with Israel today. And, and, and that is, is fascinating. So you have very polarized experiences happening right now. Alignment or unalignment with you with Israel versus an alignment, cerebral, emotional alignment within different communities that we're very well aware of, of trying to connect to Israel. Again, speaking about being inspired by people who are not openly religious, I don't know what goes on in their neshama, but there are some people out on social media, and again, I look at social media way more than I should, it's not healthy for me, but some of the good points are seeing certain people that I never before, perhaps because I wasn't paying attention, but I never before notice them speaking openly about it's Judaism in Israel. It's incredible. When it's Michael incredible. Rappaport curses on social media about people who hate Israel, talking about how important it is to support Israel, when Kevin Euclid, former Red Sox player, yeah. I'm a Red Sox fan, every single day just says, ignore the haters, I'm Yisrael Chai, there is something fundamentally inspiring about that for me. And they're putting everything on the line. They shouldn't have to, but they are because they're standing for truth. And that's remarkable because this has been really a battle of evil versus goodness, truth versus you know, falsehood. And that itself, when you're in a principled battle where things are becoming very black and white, I think that is internalized. Consciously, subconsciously, you're internalizing that black-whiteness of this world that I think is also moving and stirring the soul to choose what's right and wrong for my own trajectory 
for what's right and wrong for why am I aligned in this column? Why am I not aligned there? And, and I think that that is stirring the soul and prompting a readdressing of sorts of immigration, aliyah, of destiny of the Jewish people and where we belong. As you said, it would be so much easier for some of these people, some of these celebrities, some of these well-known people to just say, you know what, I'm going to keep my mouth shut or openly align with the other side. And they're not doing it. I mean, many unfortunately are. But those who are not doing it, it simply, as you said, it stirs the soul. And there's obviously something in their soul which has been stirred as well. I want to ask you a final question, a somewhat provocative question. I want to ask you about the role of diaspora Jewry. Some people would say sort of, I call it the extreme Zionist position, that the role of diaspora Jewry is to pack their suitcases sooner rather than later. And other people say, no, it's important to have a strong diaspora Jewish community. It has its own role independent of Israel. And obviously, there are many levels between that. Will you answer and tell me what do you think the role of diaspora Jewry is at all times, but particularly now in a post-October 7th world? I don't really like that question. I mean, I like the ending of the question. You started to qualify the first question with a lot of Rav Cook sparkness and religious undertones or overtones to it. It's very hard to address that question without addressing a divine reasoning for why we might be in a diaspora or not. So a role sometimes seems to be a choice of our own making of, of where we decide to go or to decide in a historic chapters in life. So I'm going to put that on side. Uh, I would say, what should our focus be? Or what should the focus of diaspora jury at this point is? I think speak power to truth. I think the doesn't have to be these Yechidim celebrities. I think we need to, they, diaspora jury needs to stand strong. And I think it is standing strong with Israel's right to do what it needs to do. That's number one, to feel our pain in a way and to feel our joy and to somehow connect with us, connect with us in, in a way that's more visceral, more personal, more emotional than it has in the past. And again, ask yourself, again, I'm just repeating myself, of opening, having that honesty, since you're fighting for truth, and be truthful to oneself. Be truthful to oneself, integrally. What is the role of a Jew? Where does a Jew belong? Where does the Jewish people belong? Start having that conversation. Say it out loud so you can hear yourself. You know, do it during your Shimon Esther when you have some quiet time. Ask yourself, where does a Jew belong? Why am I not there? Why are we not there? Go through history. You have some time. It's a long Shimon Esther. It depends where you dive it. Where did, where do the Jews belong? Why am I not there? Create that dialogue. Start dissecting something that's so fundamental. And I say Davini because you're saying the words. You're praying for the very option that is standing in front of your face. So when you get to these words, so then say, stop for a second. I can get there. Not in five weeks, that's escapism and that's hysteria. But why isn't my family planning to do it? Why don't I have a plan? Why am I not pining for that option? I'm saying it in my prayers. Is it so rote? And then explore the reasons that are and the obstacles that are preventing you. And that's fine if at the end of the, you have a conclusion saying that we can't. But your fila and your longing and your pining and your religious observance will be 10 times more honest and genuine if you go through this exercise. I just want to say, Rabbi Fast, that that last point is, you've said a lot of great things today, but that's my absolute favorite. Perhaps it's because I agree so strongly that tefillah, really, we talk about lehit palel being a reflexive verb, that is something you do to yourself. And I believe that tefillah is a conversation with God. And since you don't necessarily hear him answer, sometimes you have to answer on his behalf and have that back and forth in your own mind. I believe that tefillah, it's not just a joke. That is the time to have these internal conversations. I think that's a fundamental truth about the nature of prayer is that it has to be some sort of internal dialogue at times to say, what do I really think? What do I really want? Is the thing that I'm requesting from God something that I actually want? And if I don't, why not? What do I really want? To me, that is extraordinarily important. Thank you. I agree with you. We're both agreeing. Ditto to, to that last sentence. Okay. Rabbi Yoshua Fass, I want to thank you. This has been a really fascinating and enjoyable conversation. The topics that we're talking about are very, very important. And I think that I don't look at anything good, so to speak, coming from what happened over the past four months. But if we want to talk about a silver lining of sorts, 
I think a silver lining is that these conversations that may have been submerged before are now happening out in the open. And for that reason, I'm very grateful that we were able to have this conversation today. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Loved and enjoyed every moment of it. And we should all have soul to vote. Our soldiers should come home protected and safe. Our chatufim, our prisoners should come home to their families. All those who have been infirmed should be have a speedy recovery. And all the families that are reeling in pain from either their losses or from their uncertainties should get uh, somehow find the nechama in time for them soon. Amen, amen. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.